Chapter Four of Marshy and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Om One Two Three. Marshy and Other Stories by Rabindranath Tagore. Chapter Four, The Supreme Night. I used to go to the same dame's school with Surabala and play at marriage with her. When I paid visits to her house, her mother would pat me, and setting us side by side, would say to herself, What a lovely pair! I was a child then, but I could understand her meaning well enough. The idea became rooted in my mind that I had a special right to Surabala above that of people in general. So it happened that, in the pride of ownership, at times I punished and tormented her, and she, too, fagged for me and bore all my punishments without complaint. The villagers wanted to praise her beauty, but in the eyes of a young barbarian like me, that beauty had no glory. I knew only that Surabala had been born in her father's house solely to bear my yoke, and that, therefore, she was the particular object of my neglect. My father was the land steward of the Chaudhrys, a family of Jamindars. It was his plan as soon as I had learned to write a good hand, to train me in the work of estate management and secure a rent collectorship for me somewhere. But in my heart I disliked the proposal. Neil Roton of our village had run away to Calcutta, had learnt English there, and finally became the Nazir of the district magistrate. That was my life's ideal. I was secretly determined to be the head clerk of the judge's court, even if I could not become the magistrate's Nazir. I saw that my father always treated these court officers with the greatest respect. I knew from my childhood that they had to be propitiated with gifts of fish, vegetables, and even money. For this reason, I had given a seat of high honor in my heart to the court underlings, even to the bailiffs. These are the gods worshipped in our Bengal, a modern miniature edition of the three thirty millions of deities of the Hindu pantheon. For gaining material success, People have more genuine faith in them than in the good Ganesh, the giver of success. Hence the people now offer to these officers everything that was formerly Ganesha's due. Fired by the example of Nilrotun, I too seized a suitable opportunity and ran away to Calcutta. There I first put up in the house of a village acquaintance, and afterwards got some funds from my father for my education. Thus I carried on my studies regularly. In addition, I joined political and benevolent societies. I had no doubt whatever that it was urgently necessary for me to give my life suddenly for my country. But I knew not how such a hard task could be carried out. Also, no one showed me the way. But nevertheless, my enthusiasm did not abate at all. We country lads had not learned to sneer at everything like the precocious boys of Calcutta, and hence our fate was very strong. The leaders of our associations delivered speeches, and we went begging for subscriptions from door to door in the hot blaze of noon without breaking our fast, or we stood by the roadside distributing handbills, or arranged the chairs and bounces in the lecture hall, and if anybody who spread a word against our leader, we got ready to fight him. For these things the city boys used to laugh at us as provincials. I had come to Calcutta to be a Najir or a head clerk but I was preparing to become a Mazini or a Garibaldi. At this time, 
Sir Wallace's father and my father laid their heads together to unite us in marriage. I had come to Calcutta at the age of fifteen. Sir Walla was eight years old then. I was now eighteen, and in my father's opinion I was almost past the age of marriage. But it was my secret vow to remain unmarried all my life, and to die for my country. So I told my father that I would not marry before I had finished my education. In two or three months I learned that Surabala had been married to a platter named Ramlochan. I was then busy collecting subscriptions for raising fallen India, and this news did not seem worth my thought. I had matriculated, and was about to appear in the intermediate examination, when my father died. I was not alone in the world, but had to maintain my mother and two sisters. I had therefore to leave college and look out for employment. After a good deal of exertion, I secured the post of a second master in the matriculation school of a small town in the Nuakhali district. I thought, here is just a work for me. By my advice and inspiration, I shall train up every one of my pupils as a general for future India. I began to work, and then found that the impending examination was a more pressing affair than the future of India. The headmaster got angry whenever I talked of anything outside grammar or algebra, and in a few months my enthusiasm too flagged. I am no genius. In the quiet of the home I may form vast plans, but when I enter the field of work I have to bear the yoke of the plough on my neck like the Indian bullock, get my tail twisted by my master, break clouds all day patiently and with a bowed head, and then at sunset have to be satisfied if I get any cut to chew. Such a creature has not the spirit to prance and caper. One of the teachers lived in the schoolhouse to guard against fires. As I was a bachelor, this work was thrown on me. I lodged in a tat shade close to the large cottage in which the school sat. The schoolhouse stood at some distance from the inhabited portion of the town, and beside a big tank. Around it were betel-nut, coconut, and mother trees, and very near to the school building two laurels and neem trees grew close together and cast a cool shade around. One thing I have forgotten to mention, and indeed I had not so long considered it worth mentioning. The local government platter, Ram Lochan Ray, lived near our school. I also knew that his wife, my early playmate, Suravala, lived with him. I got acquainted with Ramlochan Babu. I cannot say whether he knew that I had known Survala in childhood. I didn't think fit to mention the fact at my first introduction to him. Indeed, I didn't clearly remember that Survala had been ever linked with my life in any way. One holiday, I paid a visit to Ramlochan Babu. The subject of our conversation has gone out of my mind. Probably it was the unhappy condition of present-day India. Not that he was very much concerned or heartbroken over the matter, but the subject was such that one could freely pour forth one's sentimental sorrow over it for an hour or two while puffing at one's hookah. While thus engaged, I heard in a side room the softest possible jingle of bracelets, crackle of dress, and footfall, and I felt certain that two curious eyes were watching me through a small opening of the window. All at once, there flashed upon my memory a pair of eyes, a pair of lovers' eyes, beaming with trust, simplicity, and girlhood's love. Black pupils, thick dark eyelashes, a calm fixed gaze, 
Suddenly some unseen force squeezed my heart in an iron grip, and it throbbed with intense pain. I returned to my house, but the pain clung to me. Whether I read, wrote, or did any other work, I could not shake that weight off my heart. A heavy load seemed to be always swinging from my heartstrings. In the evening, calming myself a little, I began to reflect, what ails me? From within came the question, Where is your Suravala now? I replied, I gave her up of my free will. Surely I did not expect her to wait for me forever. But something kept saying, Then you could have got her merely for the asking. Now you have not the right to look at her even once, do what you will. That Suravala of your boyhood may come very close to you, you may hear the jingle of her bracelets. You may breathe the air embalmed by the essence of her hair. But there will always be a wall between you two. I answered, Be it so. What is Surabala to me? My heart resigned. Today Surabala is nobody to you. But what might she not have been to you? Ah, that's true. What might she not have been to me? Dearest to me of all things, closer to me than the world besides, the sharer of all my life's joys and sorrows, she might have been. And now, she is so distant, so much of a stranger, that to look on her is forbidden, to talk with her is improper, and to think of her is a scene. While this Ramlochan, coming suddenly from nowhere, has muttered a few set religious texts, and in one swoop has carried off Suravala from the rest of mankind. I have not come to preach a new ethical code, or to revolutionize society. I have no wish to tear asunder domestic ties. I am only expressing the exact working of my mind, though it may not be reasonable. I could not by any means banish from my mind the sense that Suravala, reigning there within shelter of Ramlochan's home, was mine far more than his. The thought was, I admit, unreasonable and improper, but it was not unnatural. Thereafter, I could not set my mind to any kind of work. At noon, when the boys in my class hummed, when nature outside simmered in the sun, when the sweet scent of the neem blossoms entered the room on the tepid breeze, I then wished. I know not what I wished for, but this I can say, that I did not wish to pass all my life in correcting the grammar exercises of those future hopes of India. When school was over, I could not bear to live in my large lonely house, and yet, if anyone paid me a visit, it bored me. In the gloaming, as I sat by the tank and listened to the meaningless breeze sighing through the bittle and coconut palms, I used to muse that human society is a web of mistakes. Nobody has the sense to do the right thing at the right time, and when the chance is gone, we break our hearts over vain longings. I could have married Suravala and lived happily. But I must be a Garibaldi, and I ended by becoming the second master of a village school, and played a Ramlochan Ray, who had no special call to be Suravala's husband, to whom, before his marriage, Suravala was no wise different from a hundred other maidens, has very quietly married her, and is earning lots of money as government pleader. When his dinner is badly cooked, he scolds Suravala, and when he is in good humor, he gives her a bangle. He is sleek and fat, tidily dressed, free from every kind of worry. He never passes his evenings by the tank, 
gazing at the stars, and sighing. Ramlochan was called away from our town for a few days by a big case elsewhere. Siravala in her house was as lonely as I was in my school building. I remember it was a Monday. The sky was overcast with clouds from the morning. It began to drizzle at ten o'clock. At the aspect of the heavens, our headmaster closed the school early. All day the black detached clouds began to run about in the sky, as if making ready for some grand display. Next day, towards afternoon, the rain descended in torrents, accompanied by storm. As the night advanced, the fury of wind and water increased. At first the wind was easterly, gradually it veered, and blew towards the south and southwest. It was idle to try to sleep on such a night. I remembered that, in this terrible weather, Suravala was alone in her house. Our school was much more strongly built than her bungalow. Often and often did I plan to invite her to the schoolhouse, while I meant to pass the night alone by the tank. But I could not summon up courage for it. When it was half-past one in the morning, the roar of the tidal wave was suddenly heard. The sea was rushing on us. I left my room and ran towards Suravala's house. In the way, stood one embankment of our tank, and as I was wading to it, the flood already reached my knees. When I mounted the bank, a second wave broke on it. The highest part of the bank was more than seventeen feet above the plain. As I climbed up the bank, another person reached it from the opposite side. Who she was, every fibre of my body knew at once, and my whole soul was thrilled with the consciousness. I had no doubt that she, too had recognized me. On an island, some three years in area stood we two. All else was covered with water. It was a time of cataclysm. The stars had been blotted out of the sky. All the lights of the earth had been darkened. There would have been no harm if we had held converse then. But we could not bring ourselves to utter a word. Neither of us made even a formal inquiry after the other's health. Only we stood gazing at the darkness. At our feet swirled the dense, black, wild, roaring torrent of death. Today, Saravala has come to my side, leaving the whole world. Today she has none besides me. In our far-off childhood, this Saravala had come from some dark, primeval realm of mystery, from a life in another orb, and stood by my side on this luminous people art. And today, after a wide span of time, she has left that art, so full of light and human beings, to stand alone by my side amidst this terrible, desolate gloom of nature's dead convulsion. The stream of birth had flung the tender bud before me, and the flood of death had wafted the same flower, now in full bloom, to me and to none else. One more wave, and we shall be swept away from this extreme point of art, torn from the stalks on which we now sit apart, and made one in dead. May that wave never come. May Suravala live long and happily, guard round by husband and children, household and kinsfolk. This one night, standing on the brink of nature's destruction, I have tasted a tunnel please. The night wore out, the tempest ceased, the flood abetted. Without a word spoken, Suravala went back to her house, and I too returned to my shed, without having uttered a word. I reflected. True, I have become no Nazir or head clerk. 
nor a Garibaldi. I am only the second master of a beggarly school. But one night had for its brief space beamed upon my whole life's course. That one night, out of all the days and nights of my allotted span, has been the supreme glory of my humble existence. End of chapter 4 The Supreme Night